0: For half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50.
1: Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagge. It's a typical moment, you would think, in the family of JPZ. I'm at the banquet in 2019, and there's no other group in which I'd be sitting there at the table at the Sheridan Bar talking to our guest today, and he'd be telling me all these great stories about all these amazing sporting events he's covered, but that's just what the JPZ family is, and you sit down and everybody's friendly with everybody. Today's guest is one of our big gets, and I'm really excited to have him today from the class of 1989 He's the EVP and executive producer of Westwood One Sports. Mr. Howard Jenneroff, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you. And This is a great project. And uh, thank you for undertaking it because I don't have the time, even though I'd love to be a part of this history of the station, you know, in, in a bigger fashion.
1: You're a part of it today, which is what we're thrilled to have you. Tell me how you ended up at Syracuse and finding the station. We'll start at the beginning.
0: Very simple. Um, I was in high school in New York City. Knew I wanted to get into sports broadcasting. My goal, and I tell this to everybody, is was to be at as many sporting events as possible for free as I could. And whether that meant selling hot dogs as a vendor or whether that meant, you know, working as a journalist or some other fashion, that's what I wanted to do. And and I grew up in New York and Marv Albert was doing every sport and everything at the time. And he was a Syracuse guy. And so that was my first uh, knowledge of the university. And Uh, There were some others that were out there that had come through Syracuse and Bob Costas and everything. And then when I was in high school, trying to figure out what to do and where to go, Sports Illustrated did an article on Syracuse University in Newhouse called Sportscaster U. You know, is Greg Papa the next in the great line of Syracuse broadcasters from uh, Marty Glickman to Dick Stockton to Marv Albert to Bob Costas? Len Berman was also mentioned in the article. And so it was a no-brainer. That was where I wanted to go because that's what I wanted to do. And they had a great sports program and Pearl Washington had just committed to going there, was a yep. freshman and all that. And so if I think is my time right, maybe he was a sophomore, it was natural. That's why I wanted to go there. I, To be fair, I did not know about Z89 when I first applied and when I was accepted. And I only found out about it when I was on campus. That wasn't the station that brought me, it was the reputation that brought me. But once I was there and I heard about it, it became obvious where, where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So going after sports and that being your passion, were you at AER as well? Or So back in the day, you could not work at both. Okay. It was one or the other. And there was a very strict clearance process at AER where they only had about, you know, eight people that were on the air and you had some people that would write for the cast. So I would go at five in the morning and write for some of the anchors. And as you can tell, even still, I have a... New York accent. I try and enunciate and mask as much as what I can. <laughs> Back then, it was much heavier. Much heavier. I mean, I didn't say coffee and water, <laughs> but it was bad. It was bad. And so I couldn't get cleared on AER to start. And I would do, I would write for Mike Tarico and some of the other guys that were there. And the, the option was to cut your chops, if you will, at Z89 and get some of the kinks out of the way on the air. It was much more open. And they were doing women's basketball. When I first started, they had the rights to minor league baseball. Uh, they were doing the the Chiefs games too. Yep, and we did other shows and talk and everything else. And so it was a good opportunity for me to get a little more hands on than I could at AER. And so when I started there, it just kind of snowballed, and I moved up the chain there, and then never ended up even trying to get cleared again on AER. And to be fair, I don't know that I ever would have, <laughs> because they had the likes of Mike Tirico and other guys like that, and Sean Cothard and Doug Sherman and all these great guys. But a lot of people did start at Z eighty nine. Worked for us and then went over to AER, Ian Eagle being the biggest example of it. Sure. And so it was just a matter of by the time I was the end of sophomore year, I knew I wanted to be behind the scenes and not on the air anymore. And so it made more sense for me to stay there where I could do much more production work than ever switching over. Plus, I had all my friends there and uh, it was just the best experience of being at that campus, quite honestly. That was my family. That's a
1: theme that's come up in so many episodes of this podcast. So you've said your friends. Who were some of the folks that you were working with at the time in the late 80s at JPZ?
0: So when I first started, the sports director was Neil Prezant, and Jim Morrison was the assistant sports director. And they're the ones that allowed me an opportunity, and I'm very grateful for that, and promoted me from within to do a lot of things. And, you know, my sophomore year was a great year for the athletic department. We went to the Final Four, the national championship game in basketball. We went to the Sugar Bowl as an undefeated team for football. And while we didn't do the play-by-play of men's basketball or men's football, we covered those teams right. and had a lot of opportunity. We did a weekly show with Don McPherson, who was the quarterback of the undefeated team. We did a weekly show with Ronnie Cycli. Mm-hmm. And those were set up before the season started, and we got very lucky with both. And I didn't have anything to do with setting those up. But worked on those shows every week. And so that was a great experience, a great opportunity, and a lot of fun. And, you know, got to go to New Orleans. And, you know, that just kind of started my passion for it uh, even more. And, you know, it didn't matter what we were doing. Uh, Kevin Martinez and Dan Corson and all these other guys, we did a weekly Saturday morning show called Press Box, where we, quote unquote, tackled the issues of the week. Mm -hmm. And then that show ended up when I was a, a junior, we changed the show to become a high school football show where we went out every Friday night and did play-by-play, recorded it, and from all the different local high schools, and put it together and put together the best highlights the next day and would have a player of the week and have the player come in the studio and give him a trophy and have coaches come on with us. It was a great experience. And then Scott Kordushi and Mitch Levy were on the sports staff, and Rich Ruggiero and Ian Eagle was on the air with us. And Craig Carton was on the air. His first on-air gig was with us. Mm -hmm. Mike Dardis. And so there was a lot of that was the sports that Scott Meech was there and Carl Weinstein. You know, Mike Tierney was in music Mm -hmm. and T-Bone and Jim Mahoney. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody who's listening to this and they're very upset with me right now (laughs) and I apologize. But it was a great crew, you know, from the promotion staff to the operation staff to the sports staff. It was great because everybody was there because they wanted to be there. Yeah, They cared about it. They loved it. Look. You know this. Everybody who's listening to this knows that it's, what, 15 degrees and snowing every morning, and yet I never missed a cast at 6.20 in the morning when I had to be there. Right. Couldn't make it to my 8.30 classes when it snowed. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's motivation, but, right? But the point was, right, I don't ever remember somebody saying, hey, I can't make it to my shift at 6 a.m. I don't remember that. But we all were like, oh, my God, I'm going back to bed. It's freezing out. I'm not going to my, my 8.30, you know, logic class or whatever it was. <laughs> Every minute that I was free, that I could be there, I was there. I mean, we were editing, I mentioned that press box show. We were editing at night, that Friday night shuttle, three, four in the morning, because everyone would come back. You know, there was no cell phones back then. Right. You couldn't transmit any other way, you couldn't send it in on the computer. So everyone would come back from East Syracuse, Manoa, and Fulton, and Baldwinsville, and, and Henninger High, and wherever it was, Liverpool, and Nottingham, and they'd bring in their cassettes. And we'd have to go through two hours of tape from every one of them, pull out the best highlights. They'd interview the player and the coach after the game. We'd put together a package on each game. And so wow. we had multiple studios working. So we were working. And this show aired at 9 or 10 in the morning. I forget which. So we were there till 4 in the morning on a Friday night. Now, How many college kids do you know that are not on Marshall Street on Friday night? <laughs> but we had 10, 11 guys in there. Every one of us was in there, you know, editing sound and working on this show because it was a passion. Still is for me. I never lost that passion. That's why I still do. I'm still in this business and love it. There's nothing like the adrenaline of trying to get a broadcast on the air for me and doing it right or redoing it until, you know, you think it's right.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the sports coverage that JPZ had in 86, 87, 88, 89 is legendary in terms of the 50-year history of the radio station. Talk to me about your career after JPZ and how you worked your way up
0: to where you are now. It's a funny story. I was, I don't know, 10 days away from graduating. I had applied for a lot of different jobs like everybody and and obviously it's a lot easier now with internet and things like that. Back back in the day, Newhouse, they had a career placement office. They still do. Every Friday at four o'clock, they would print a list of job openings Yeah. from alums that would call it in. Uh, again, no emails back then for the younger listeners. They would call it into this office and they'd type these up and they'd make photocopies of it. And you would come and pick up a photocopy of it Friday at four o'clock. And this could be you could be an overnight DJ in Mason City, Iowa, might be the job, right? (laughs) Or it might be a camera operator in Fort Pierce, Florida. It could be the sports director at the ABC affiliate in Macon, Georgia. I mean, anywhere it could be. And so you would go and get this list. Then I applied for a couple of things and I had interned down in Miami and I had a potential part-time job in Miami where I had interned and had a potential part-time radio job in, in New York behind the scenes. So it's, I'm graduating on May the 14th. So let's back to May the 5th, Friday, May 5th. I'm going there to pick up my thing. And I'm looking through the listings. I'm walking out the back of New House on Waverly Avenue. Yep. And one of the girls in my class asked me if that was the most recent listing. And, she, and I said, yes. She said she was on her way to the airport running to go home for the weekend. Would I mind giving her that copy? She didn't have time to go up to the third floor to get it. Um, if I would go get another one and give her that one. I was like, sure, no problem. Handed it to her, hadn't looked at it. Went back up the elevator from Waverly up to the building, got a new one. And when I got up there, the woman who was working there at the time, who now works for the chancellor's office, is still there, Lynn Vanderhoek, yep. was there and said, hold on a second. Somebody was calling in a job for CBS Radio Sports hmm. at four o'clock on Friday. The woman who worked at CBS, who became my boss, who hired me, had gone to Syracuse's graduate program and was calling in to offer the job. They were looking for somebody to start immediately who could work on Major League Baseball and the NFL uh, in production. So it was going to be a hybrid job. They were starting a Spanish language network to broadcast the Jewel events in Spanish nationally on the radio and also working on the English side. So you had to be proficient in Spanish, you had to know production, and you had to know sports. I was proficient in Spanish. It was my best subject in school. Mm -hmm. And so I walked down the hall the younger listeners don't know what a payphone is. There was a payphone at the hall, end of, <laughs> end of the hall. It's was a Maroon 5 song about 10 years ago. And I called my boss, Beth Robinson. You know, I just heard about the job. She goes, I just called it in. I was in the room when you called. When can you come down for an interview? I was like, I can be there in five hours if I drive fast. Obviously, was, she wasn't <laughs> going to interview me on a Friday night at 9 o'clock. <laughs> I had the interview on Tuesday morning. Before the end of the week, before I graduated, I was offered the job. <sighs> so I graduated Sunday. I packed Monday, drove Monday. I started Tuesday. So May 16th, 1989, I started. I have never left. So Westwood One took over from CBS Radio in 1998. They merged. I stayed when it became Westwood One. And until the pandemic forced us out of our New York City studios, I had been in the same office with the same phone number for 30 years. A different job, obviously, moved up the ladder. Now I'm in Los Angeles, but same company and have never left from that one time. And I say this in all seriousness, had... The person I run into in the you know in the lobby of Newhouse, I don't know that I would have been back in Newhouse to see that job all the next week because the finals week I wouldn't have been in there. We didn't have right, our normal right. classes. I, I don't know when I would have been back, much less you know interviewed for the job, received the job, or anything like that. So sometimes right place, right time. Correct. You don't know who the woman was, or you could. Oh, I know exactly who she was, and I don't think she knows this story. I've not spoken to her since. I've not seen her since. But she had a a very long career as a TV anchor in Vermont. Stephanie Gorin was her name. No kidding. I lived in Vermont. I remember watching her on TV, small world. Look at that. So yeah, if I remember correctly, she was from Boston and heading home to Boston for the weekend, but it's it's 30 some odd years ago. So I could be wrong. She probably has no recollection of it. We'll have to send her the podcast and see if she remembers. Yeah, I don't know, but it certainly changed the course of my career. So thank you, Stephanie. So in addition to
1: that fortuitous moment for you, what lessons and experiences did you have at JPZ that have informed you uh, throughout your career as you kind of rose up the ranks there?
0: There's a few things. I mean, I mentioned one of them already passion. And I think this is true for any field. I've taught this to my daughters. I've said this to students when I've spoken in their classes. I don't care what job or what line of work you go in. If you're not passionate for it, I don't think you can be truly successful. Then it's just a job to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've never looked at this or felt this was a job. This was a career choice for me. Yeah. And not everyone has that advantage that they can pursue that or get that. I've been very lucky. I worked very hard at it, but. I think you have to have passion to be successful. And so that's number one. I said that at the station, everybody there was there because they wanted to be there. Yeah, It was fun. You have to enjoy it. And I believe this. I I say this as well. The worst day on my job is better than most people's best day on their job. Yeah. And I feel that. And that's why I've stayed here for 30 some odd years. I mean, yes, there's, there's parts of every job that you're like, oh, all right, I have to work on a budget or I've got to do this or whatever it may be, right? But in the end of the day, I get paid to know how many touchdown passes somebody has or whatever it may be, right? Just get us on the air or line up an interview or do a piece on this or whatever. How is that bad? How is anything about that bad? It's perspective to me, right? And I mean this sincerely. If I had won the Powerball, was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there was a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, whatever it was, I'd still do my job. Yeah. I might hire some people around me to help me. <laughs> to do the budget, some stuff you don't want to spend your day on, probably. Right, right. I might hire some a, a bigger staff, right, out of my own pocket. I don't care. I might hire somebody to drive me, somebody to cook for me, somebody to whatever, to free up some stuff for me. But I would still go produce the Rams-Raiders game next Thursday night at SoFi. Why? Because I love being at the event. I love doing that. I would still work on the 50th anniversary piece we're putting together on the Immaculate Reception. I would still work on those things because it's a labor of love. That's the most important. The second thing I think is good enough is not good enough. Mm. I was surrounded by some perfectionists there at Z89, and I'm a very type A person anyway. Just because you can finish something and get it on the air doesn't mean it should be on the air. doesn't mean you can't make it better. Mm. doesn't mean you can't improve the product. And so I've always felt, and I maintain this, and I harp this to my staff, just because you have it done, if something comes up that you can make it better, fix it. Yeah. Something comes up, in 1997, I was working on a 50th anniversary, speaking of 50th anniversary piece, which is what made me think of it, on Jackie Robinson, Breaking the Color Barrier. Sure. And I it was an hour-long special we were doing before the opening night of the season, about I don't know, 10 days, two weeks before. We were virtually done with the entire piece. It came to my attention that his manager's first manager in Montreal, Clyde Sukforth was in a hospital in Maine. I wanted to talk to Clyde Sukforth. I thought it would make the show better. Mm. I didn't know how coherent he would be. I didn't know whatever. But if he was on his deathbed and we had a chance to get him, I don't mean to sound callous, but we can make the show better, we were going to try and do it. We got him. Two answers, but something nobody else could tell us, right? Because he was the manager. Wow. But I'll tell you another one, even better. So Friday night, two nights before the show's airing on Sunday, before the season's starting, I'm reading Baseball America. And I'm reading about a new ballpark opening in New Orleans and that Branch Ricky the third would be there. Okay. Now Branch Ricky the First was the one who signed Jackie Robinson to come to the Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. He was basically the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. I didn't know there was a Branch Ricky the third. <laughs> Branch Ricky the first wasn't deceased. Right. And so all of a sudden I'm trying to track down Branch Ricky the because maybe he knew Jackie Robinson. Maybe he could tell stories about his grandfather. Maybe whatever. He turns out he was the commissioner, I believe it was, of minor league baseball at the time, of one of the associations of minor league baseball. I tracked him down. And on Sunday morning, he called from the airport in New Orleans, huh. and the show was airing at six o'clock, seven o'clock at night. And I had to blow up the show because all of a sudden, not only did he tell me he knew Jackie Robinson, he said Jackie Robinson used to read him bedtime stories. Wow. In his house when he was growing up, because Jackie Robinson lived when he was getting his house fixed in Westport, Connecticut. Jackie Robinson was living temporarily with the Rickies. Wow. While they were fixing up his house. Huh. And so how does that not go in the show? Right but you don't know it until you have it, right? So to me, that show, I could have been done with that show two weeks before. I could have been done with the show two nights before. That's an example to me, and maybe it's an extreme example of never stop looking to make the product better if you can. Don't settle for good enough. If you have an opportunity to make the show better, make it better, however you can. And I've been blessed by working with a lot of great people who have the same attitude or understand that because there's such a satisfaction afterwards of having that and putting that in. I'll tell you another one that didn't make air last week on the Lions game that bothers me. The Lions were 3 and 0 in November heading into Thanksgiving last week, and the Detroit Lions had not gone 4 and 0 in November since 1962. Jeez. Unfortunately, I was not aware of that until the start of the fourth quarter of that game. But I actually have audio from that 1962 Lions Packers game on Thanksgiving. Wow. I have a touchdown pass, I have a sack, and I have the final seconds, and the Packers came into that game undefeated. They were the best team in the NFL. So now in the fourth quarter, I'm going to grab that highlight because the Lions were winning at the time, as we taped this on December 1st, so if people know the reference, when they listen. So I'm thinking, if they win, I'm going to play this highlight. Yeah. 60 years ago. That's pretty good. You have a highlight from that. It's rare. And then I'm like, well, if they're up late in the fourth, maybe I don't take the chance that they lose. If they're up late in the fourth quarter, I'll just play it out of a break and say, hey, if they hold on, mm-hmm. they'll be the first time because then it may not make. Anyway, long story short, they blow the lead. Right. Buffalo takes the lead. TV doesn't take a break. I can't explain it to the announcers in time like how to you know do this without going to a break or writing it down. And then Detroit took the lead late. Bills won it on the buzzer. Didn't have time to run the highlight because they lost. Had they won it, held on, I could have run in the postgame. Right. But I'm upset. I had that ready to go. It never made air. And that will haunt me for years because I should have known it ahead of time. I should have had it ready. I could have had it ready. It would have made the broadcast better. Wow. And so to me, those things bother me more than when I have the successes of the other ones. Taking you back to those 4 and 5 a.m. Friday nights at JPZ, speaking the football highlights, right? Learn that at Z89. You just don't go on the air unprepared and you just don't go on the air to go on the air because you can. Now, I'm not saying that everybody did that. But I saw, I mean, there was a production director, Jam Master Andy Renninger, when I was talking about names of people that taught me, phenomenal. I had produ- great production skills because of him. And again, this is no computer editing. He would splice and resplice or unsplice or whatever to get it right. And multi track mixing was totally different. He was phenomenal. I learned so much from him. Again, he was another one that would stay there late or get there early to make sure it sounded right. And if it didn't hit on the beat, if the voiceover guy didn't hit on the proper beat move it fix it try it again save the take you took did you mix? just in case yep because maybe it isn't better but do it again until you're completely satisfied with it and so that's kind of how i've lived ever since and they haven't thrown me out yet it's wjpz at 50 hey it's jag you're probably
1: listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person i'm interviewing But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives.
0: Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50.
1: Let me back up a little bit. So you end up getting the job right out of school, right out of graduation, and you've kind of climbed through. Take me quickly through the different titles and roles you've had and what you're doing now. You're talking about being, you know, in the announcer's ears for these national broadcasts on, say, Thanksgiving.
0: Take me through uh, the last 30-plus years. Yeah, how much time you have? (laughs) (laughs) As much as you want to give me. Now, real quickly, without boring the audience. So I started doing my first gig was working on Major League Baseball, which was my biggest passion growing up. I was a walking baseball encyclopedia. In my spare time, I would memorize the encyclopedia. And so I started working on games behind the scenes. And it would be, you know, just basic stuff. I remember one of the first games I was working on, three batters hit back to back to back home runs. And I made sure that the announcers knew immediately that only twice in history had somebody hit four home runs in a row mm-hmm. in a game. And it had happened in the 60s with the Indians and the Twins. And they looked at me like, how would you know that? <laughs> right. Okay. I did my research just in case. But they said, but you didn't know somebody was going to hit three home runs. Yeah. But you have to know just in case things happen, what's significant. You could. where do you, again, you couldn't look things up on a computer back then. I have to explain this to you. You had a giant (laughs) baseball encyclopedia. I'm holding my hands apart, people, that are about the size from my torso to my neck. Yeah, yeah. That's the size the baseball encyclopedia was back then. And by the way, that wasn't even in the baseball encyclopedia because that was a record. It wasn't in there. (laughs) And so you have to have the record book. Long story short, started working on that and started working in, in all summer, My first full baseball game that I was the studio producer for went 22 innings, (laughs) baptism by fire right away. First World Series I worked on, there was an earthquake. I was in the studio for the San Francisco-Oakland earthquake, game three. You know, we were on the air, we were in the middle of a tape interview with Tony LaRusso when the earthquake hit and everyone starts screaming and, you know, we lost the connection. How do we get him back on? What do we do? You know. So again, I didn't know what to do. I had to learn, you know, and then once when I had a blackout in the Super Bowl, 25 years later, I knew exactly what to do Um, because then I was in charge by then. Back in New Orleans, right? That was 10 years ago, actually. Yes. So this will be the 10th anniversary. We're working on a piece on that blackout for this year's Super Bowl broadcast. Anyway, I started working on uh, baseball. Then I slid over to football. I started English, Spanish, started working on those. I was in the studio mostly to start. Then I started going on the road, doing games on the road. And, you know, our portfolio expanded. We had the NCAA tournament because we were CBS radio. We had all the events that CBS television had back in the day. Right. So in the early, this was 89, early 90s, CBS had Major League Baseball. CBS had still has the NCAA tournament. They have the Masters, still have the Masters. So we did the Masters every year. We did, uh, back then, CBS had the Olympics in the 90s. 92, 94, 98, they had the Winter Olympics. So I was fortunate enough to work on those and go to Lillehammer in Japan and work with a lot of great people. And even better than all that, our announcers at CBS Radio were CBS television announcers. Oh, really? So I did games with Jim Nance and Greg Gumbel in the studio. And my first studio host was Brent Musburger with John Madden, huh. Terry Bradshaw. Pat O'Brien was there. I mean, these all the names got to work with Vince Scully at two World Series later on in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Ernie Harwell for you from Detroit. Great, great Ernie Harwell. I mean, wonderful announcers along the way. And so you learn a little bit. Ernie had a saying, and I'll butcher this, and I hate that I'm going to do that. but he said that when he got inducted to the Hall of Fame, he said, basically, I am a part of all whom I have met, basically saying he's morphed into learning from everybody you know, and becoming a super person, if you will, because he was. Absolutely. By taking a little from whether it was announcers or, I mean, he was even nicer off the air than as great as he was on the air, Hall of Fame announcer. So I just was like a sponge. You know, I tried to learn as much as I could from all these great people who had worked for so long in this business, behind the scenes, on the air, whatever, because I was a fan. I grew up listening to all these people and to be surrounded by them was was great. So how can I be better? Take a little from this guy, take a little from that guy and ask questions and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. So, you know, I didn't ask questions how to handle a 22 inning game or an earthquake in the World Series because I wasn't expecting those, but. I just kept doing that, moving up, moving up, moving up. Westwood One took over in 98, added in some different events as well. We picked up doing the NHL. And at this point, 30 years later, I think I've done every major event other than never done the NBA because ESPN Radio has had the NBA forever. Mm-hmm. I have not, not done the Australian Open. And auto racing, the only th- things I haven't done, I, I haven't done a World Cup, which is going on right now as we speak. Hopefully, one day we'll get to do that. And been very fortunate. Um, right place, right time. We've had the NFL ever since 1987. I got there in 89, mm-hmm. kept it ever since. When I first started, we did 30 games a year. We're up to 80 games a year with Thursday night, Sunday night, Saturdays, London, mm-hmm. Munich. <laughs> you know, playoffs have expanded. You know, three games on Christmas this year. The tournament has expanded NCA tournament. I've done March Madness every year since I've been there. Mm-hmm. Producing the games is my love, my passion, my biggest passion, as I mentioned. Once I became the from regular producer to coordinating producer to executive producer, you know, along the way, I am now responsible for ne- helping negotiate contracts, whether it's with leagues, conferences, uh, announcers, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And I hire all the talent and work on all the crews on top of it. And I still go out and produce games because I don't have to anymore, but that's still the, my love is being on site at the game. So, So I still will produce games because that's where I cut my chops. That's what I feel I'm best at. And that's the most fun. And negotiating a contract is not fun. (laughs) It's okay. I look, beats working for a living, but it's still, I'm sure there are people that are better at it than me. I believe I can produce a broadcast better than most, if not everyone, right? And that's not being cocky. That's not being arrogant. I've done this a long time. I feel that's my lane. Everyone has a lane. I think everybody has something that they're better at than anybody else Mm -hmm. or better than average than anybody else, right? Take me through, if you could, uh, just a typical, maybe it's a Thanksgiving game or
1: an NFL game, or a, a game you're producing. Take me through your work day, when it starts, what you're doing at
0: different times. So we do the primetime game. So like tonight, we have Patriots-Bills. I'm not working on that game, but I'll give you an example of any game. It doesn't start that day. It starts way in advance. I mean, first of all, I hire the crews way in advance. We start, that's months ago, mostly, unless there's a late change. You start working on uh, formats. How long do you have? How many breaks are there going to be? You have to work with sales. What sponsorship elements are there going to be? Do we have the player of the game sponsored? Do we have the keys to the game sponsors? The opening kickoff sponsored? What do we have? The NFL announced two weeks ago they were doing a John Madden celebration on Thanksgiving. So we now we have to reference some things about John Madden and pull out some old footage. They were celebrating John and his impact on the NFL on Thanksgiving Day. Right. And John worked for us, too, on CBS Radio, when I, as I mentioned, when I first started. Mm-hmm. And we had some old tapes of him that shows I had worked with him on. And then the other part, I'm going to lean back here and show you this, but the listeners can't see it, hang on, is that we have cue cards for everything. We do cue cards. So I'm holding a five by eight index cards that we do everything. And I will hold it up to the camera here. Opening kickoff coming up. You are listening to Monday Night Football on Westwood One. All right. So everything that the announcer will read or say is on a cue card and you've got to have them ready for a broadcast. So here's an example, another example. When a team gets inside the 20-yard line on Monday Night Football, we read. The Patriots are in the CDW red zone. CDW, people who get it. Correct. And so, and and that could be a sponsor read. It could be a promo read for our next broadcast or how you can hear our broadcast. So I've got a stack of cards here. There's probably about 100 here that we don't go off the air until every card is read. Color-coded, I see, too. Yes, color-coded is correct. Blue is a break. Yellow is a sponsor. Green is a promo. That's my type A taking over. But part of it is for visual, for us to be able to find what we need quicker. Part of it is to indicate to the announcers on the crew what's happening. For example, if I hand a blue card to Kevin Harlan on Monday Night Football or Marv Albert, who did it prior, or Jack Buck, who did it when I first started and I work with him too, the analyst knows he has to finish speaking because I'm handing him a blue card. He's got to get to a commercial break. Ah, They're all aware of that. Okay. When I hand the play-by-play announcer a yellow card, it's a sponsor read that is tied to something. A team is in the red zone. He's got to read it word for word. We got to give it some juice because it's a sponsor's paying money to have that red. He can't just kind of lollygag it. Yeah. And he's got to read it when I'm handing it to him. If I hand him a green card and it's a promo, he has the ability to pause, not read it right away, ad libit, And same thing, the analyst may have a really important point when I hand the announcer a promo. If he sees it's a green card, He's got the green light, green light, Ah, you know, he can ignore the sign, basically, you know, like a base runner in baseball, he knows he can speak through the green card because the green card doesn't have to be read then and there. It's a system I devised going along mostly for my own self to be able to find cards quickly and organize them in a certain way. But it slowly became apparent that it was helpful to have everybody understand it because it benefits the flow. So that's that. And so I've taught this craziness and I've passed this craziness along to the other producers on my staff. And I'm sure they're not thrilled with it. But anyway, uh, but yes, if I walk into a booth and I see a sponsor card that's not yellow, I get very upset. Or if I see a promo card and the truth of the matter is occasionally you're on the road a long time. You run out of colored cards and it's, it's sometimes you have to put them on white cards. So white cards are basically all right, you ran out of colored cards and you have to get it on the air. And so that's kind of what it is. But
1: I've got to imagine having your experience and you said you're, this is your passion and what you're really good at. I've got to imagine these announcers, you walk into the booth them, it's like, okay, Howie's here. Like, we're excited to see him. We're going to work great with him.
0: I'm not sure that's their first thought. but
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or the big boss is here. We better be on our toes.
0: I don't, you... That's now, maybe, yes. I can tell you, look, I get it. At this point, yes, I'm the one who hires them and or doesn't bring them back at this point. So yes, clearly when I'm in the booth, they're going to be different than when I was just the producer. You know, Mike Holmgren, uh, the great coach for the Packers and whatever is one of our announcers over the years, had a long conversation with how it totally changed for him when he became a GM and the coach. Mm -hmm. When he was the coach and he would ask Brett Favre or ask a player, hey, what can you give me today? Or how much can you, you know, can you go back in? Or How are you feeling? Not that he was pushing a guy who had a concussion or anything, but he's trying to motivate these guys to give him everything he's got. That's part of a coaching job, Right. When he became the GM, it was a totally different dynamic because, you know, now he's in an argument with a player in in arbitration or whatever it is to say, "Oh, I don't think you're worth that," or "I'll give you more money if you have this many carries." And then all of a sudden, he doesn't give the running back that many carries. Ah, the player thinking that he's doing it, you know, to say it's a different dynamic. And I'm not saying Mike ever did that necessarily, but he said the relationship with the personnel changed because now he was the one deciding their fate in addition to just coaching them. Right, I'm not saying he ever had disputes on it, but I had that nice conversation with him, and it's an interesting. It's the truth, right? It's different. So, so yes, it'll be different. But the fact of the matter is, even from age 25 or 30, I believe the only thing you can control. I believe this when I was in college and in high school too. The only thing you can control is your effort. Yeah, on anything. So, to me, I believe you put as much as you can into it and give the best effort to come out with the best product. Like if you're studying for a test. Like I was always more satisfied if I got a B on a test and I studied my ass off, Yeah. then I got an A without studying. Makes sense. Because that meant it was just easy. Mm-hmm. And now if I didn't study, and I say this to my daughters all the time, if you study and you don't get a good grade, that's better than you get. If you get a B and you didn't study, that's a problem right. because that means you could have gotten an A if you studied, yeah. right? It's the same kind of thing with this. Do as much research as you can. Be prepared because you may only get one opportunity for something and you better shine in that opportunity, Right. Kurt Warner's not in the Hall of Fame when Trent Green gets hurt, If to use a sports analogy, if he's not ready to go and take over the offense. Sure. And that holds true on any job or anything. I'm always prepared. They know when I'm in there, they're getting the best effort. I care, and I'm going to do everything I can to make this as damn good a broadcast as possible. Nobody's going to surpass me on effort and preparation. How often do you get to do games at this point? I still try and do at least one game a week. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, there's some weeks I'll do multiple games. I used to do, you know, four games a week, but I'll be honest with you, it is a drug. Yeah. I get an adrenaline rush when that light goes on. I still do. And when I don't get that adrenaline rush, I will know it is time to stop. There is nothing I've ever experienced in my life, you know, other than, you know, great moments when your children are born or something like that, where I get the juice, the energy from a broadcast. I have that that adrenaline running through me, and then when the light goes off, you know, it's great, and it's over. But I can tell you that when I have off in the month of July, and we don't have many events, I go stir crazy. (laughs) I need the juice. I need that Hall of Fame game in August, which is an exhibition game for football. Oh my God, I love it, just because it gets me back on the horse, if you will. What is it about
1: radio as opposed to TV? What is so special about radio?
0: Very simple. Two things. TV has too many cooks. Mm-hmm. And radio, you could be more creative because you only have your voice and sound to paint the picture. And so I'll take the first one first. So I equate radio and TV and not saying radio is minor league versus major league, but I'll use an analogy of minor league baseball and major league baseball. Mm-hmm. In minor league baseball, the owner of the team signs the contracts. He may go out and do some marketing. He may go out and sell some advertising or sell some tickets. He may pull the tarp when it rains. Yeah. Because there's x number of people to do it. On television or in major league baseball, there is a person for every role. Yeah. And so the GM does this, the field guy pulls the turf, the ticket guy does tickets, the marketing person does marketing, and so on and line. So it's much more intimate at radio just like in minor league baseball. It's the same reason minor league baseball is romanticized. And you're also, by the way, not making as much money as you are in the major leagues. And in radio, you don't make as much money as television. So and that's why I think it's a fair analogy. It's a lot of people working for a passion, but not too many people. And you do a little of everything. You're hands-on on everything. And I love that about radio. I love the fact that I'm a producer. I'm a director. I do the budgets. You know, I work on hiring. I work on cue cards, right? I mean, on TV, they would have just one person working on cue cards, right? Whatever it is. <laughs> You know, they have one person just to order lunch. I mean, and and I'm not knocking television, don't get me wrong. If I wasn't in radio, I'm sure I'd be in television. Right. It's just a matter of, so I love the intimacy of it, of that. And then the best part is, again, your inflection of your voice, the passion in your voice, the energy in your voice, and the words of what you're saying make all the difference in the world of how people picture it. And it could be play-by-play, it could be a sports talk show. Sports talk is not my Area of expertise, play-by-play play, has been for 30-some-odd years, but one word changes everything. Mm. I always tell people, so you can have a running back, hands the ball off to the running back, and he's into the end zone. That says nothing, but you could say, bullies his way into the end zone, pushes his way into the end zone, knifes his way into the end zone, You know, dances his way into the end zone. Or for those of us who are old enough to remember Brett Favre, when he would throw a football, I would say to my announcers, if I hear you say the word, throws a pass that's not doing it justice. Yeah. Because he would rifle it, he would loft it, he would sidearm it, he would backhand it, he would flip it. And every one of those words changes the total meaning and what you're seeing in your in your head. In your mind's eye, yeah. Right. And so to me, that's the beauty of the words, the writing, you know, even the live description because if you're writing a script, you want to be that way too. It's all you have, is music, sound, inflection, sound effects, whatever it is. To me, that's the beauty of it. TV's got pictures, right? It's so easy when you can show and have pictures. <laughs> it's so much easier to me. And they do a wonderful job. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking it. It's just very different. It's an extra tool. And so I, that's why I love radio. And I, I grew up listening to radio or audio now. By the way, it doesn't have to, let's say we're saying radio, right? But it's really audio. Yeah. Because it's on phones, it's on Alexa devices, it's on computers. You know, it's everywhere that you can consume audio. I have daughters who just graduated college. They don't listen to the radio, Mm -hmm. but they consume audio. Right. So we're everywhere, right? You can listen everywhere to all our broadcasts. I'll put a plug in here on primetime. You can listen on westwoodonesports.com. You can listen on SiriusXM. You can listen on regular radio stations around the country. But on Alexa devices, you just say open Westwood One Sports, and it takes you right to our game. Doesn't matter what game it is. You're not even sure there's a game. Just say open Westwood One Sports. And if we're doing a game, you'll be there, right? When you get to the NCAA tournament, we're doing multiple games. It'll say, which game do you want? Yeah. And it'll give you choices it's incredible so it's totally different than when you were in school when i was in school you know where you just had the one way to listen and so that's exciting too that people can consume this now wherever wherever they are and however they want to it seems like that's the future of radio i've asked
1: anybody on the podcast who
0: works in radio what they see is the future
1: of radio because there are naysayers like there have been for a hundred years yep. but it just seems like it's the content and how you can access it
0: yeah when i was in college we had a professor there at Newhouse who told us radio was a dying art hmm. and I didn't dispute it at the time, you know, but I thought about it. And they said when the TV came out, it was going to be the death of radio, right? Yep. It's just different. Now, let's be honest, it's been struggling lately financially. A lot of radio stations are having trouble. A lot of radio networks are having trouble. But it's still an important medium for a lot of reasons, you know, whether it's in emergency situations, it's still the fastest way to get information. Yep. Whether it's live sports, whether it's political talk, if that's somebody's idea of a good time.
1: Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'd say good time these days, but hey.
0: You're right, right, whatever. With their their passion to listen to. Yeah. Look, there's so many different things, just like music, right? You know, Z89's had different formats over the years and people listen. And sometimes if it's not what they like, you go to another station. We hope that's not the case, right? But, you know, Z89 was was about teaching and learning and, and learning how to move into a professional world So it's a little different than other radio stations, certainly. And that was the best part about it. Sure. Is that the people before me trained me and taught me what they knew. And then I passed it along to others. And and it's continued for however many, 50 years now, obviously. I don't think it's going anywhere soon. Like I said, it's just different. The concept of it is different. But look, the fact that it's all on demand now, most of it, other than live sports, is great listen to whatever they can listen to this or not listen to this whenever they want.
1: (laughs) Well, now that you've brought it back around to WJPZ, Howie, you know, so many people on this podcast, like yourself, got to Syracuse, you know, seeing Bob Costas or whoever it was or Marv Albert and wanted to get into sports. You are essentially, and you've said this yourself in the podcast, you're living the dream of so many of us that wanted to do sports and be involved with sports. And let me ask you about this. I know you've actually helped out JPZ students over the years. I know you've, you've worked with Z89 folks and helped a few folks out from where you sit right now,
0: right? Yes, because cause I can, right? And I'm happy to because when I was a student, you know, those opportunities weren't necessarily there, you know, and some of that is just technology allowing, you know, us to stay in communication easier and, and some of it is just being in a position, you know, I had some very good internships when I was a student and I always felt that internships are critically important for students who want to get in the field because- hey, you learn some things that are great and you learn some things that are not so great. And I say that because I did an internship in television. It was wonderful, but I knew immediately after that internship, I wanted to go to radio for what I talked about earlier. It was too many cooks. It took 17 people to make a decision for a five-minute sportscast. (laughs) It drove me crazy. And so I knew which way to go as opposed to trying to start at a TV station and then six months in or a year later saying, you know what? I like radio better. So internships are very important and they teach you and they train you and whatever. So when we had some internships available, I offered it to some students up there for that reason. You know, I had an opportunity to to speak with several of them. And look, I hire announcers for play-by-play, it's what I do Yeah, as part of my my main role. And so, I'm listening, constantly listening to announcers, constantly. And if I can help critique anybody to listen to and give my thoughts on what's good about it, what I think is not so good about it, I'm happy to do that because the only way you get better is by feedback. I can get better. I in 32 years, I don't care how many Super Bowls I've done, I don't care how many Final Fours I've done, I don't care, whatever. I have yet to have a perfect broadcast. Hmm. And the day I do, I can retire, because it'll never happen again. Close, stands, Costanza, go out on top. Right, right. Vince Lombardi said something along those lines, you strive for perfection knowing you can't attain it, but along the way, you catch excellence. So that's fine, but I've never had one, right? So I can learn. I can still learn. I've done 32 years of this, and this. I'm still learning, right? 33 years now. And so- I didn't have the opportunity to have alums from Z89 when I was graduating to critique my work or give me some advice. There were the ones who were there who graduated ahead of me that maybe would come back and I could talk to. And so that was great. But now the resources are available. And I know I'm not the only one who's willing to speak to students now or students from five years ago or whatever it is. The best part about Syracuse and Newhouse and Z89, and even for the ones that were not in Newhouse, is the network of alums. That you can take advantage of that. And why wouldn't we? And we're, look, we also know that if they worked at Z89, they have that passion. Yeah. They care about radio. They wanna succeed. I know that they were taught, trained. I shouldn't say properly is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? They, They have a certain way of doing things that they were already taught, as opposed to another student at another school that I have no knowledge about. Yeah. And there are so many of us in this business radio television podcast writing whatever that can help and so i think it's important too and look i again i mentioned once before i have twin daughters that just got out of college i wish they had some people in their fields you know that could have helped them it's important i think but it's again it's it's all about caring caring about what you do and caring about the industry and the profession and the station i would not be where i am at no chance i'm at where i'm at without z89 It has nothing to do with me running into Stephanie Gorin in the lobby of Newhouse. If I didn't work at Z89, I wasn't prepared to get that job. I wouldn't be ready to get that job, much less get it in two days. She had already been interviewing. Once she interviewed me, she called me the next day and said, look, I just need to talk to my boss, but you're the one I want to hire for this job. Yeah. Because Z89 prepared me for that job, flat out. It was not Newhouse, although Newhouse was very helpful, but it was the hands-on of Z89. It was editing tape at four in the morning. It was being courtside for women's basketball. It was being at lacrosse. It was being at high school. It was doing all these other events so that I could step into a network level event and have some semblance of what to do. You know, I didn't know exactly what to do. You know, everybody at that age thinks you know what you're doing. (laughs) I I didn't know what I was doing, right? But I knew more than anybody else at that age coming out because of Z89, because it was a hands-on laboratory, basically. Absolutely. And still is. And so how could I not want to help out others there because I would not be doing what I'm doing without it, flat out. Absolutely not. Well said. Last question
1: for you. Yes. Is it true that you shook a spoon in the Sadler snack bar at Brian Lapis and said, Brian, why haven't you come over to Z89 yet?
0: So when I said to you earlier that I spent every free moment at Z89, I guess there's a small lie in that, in that I also had to have a job to help pay my way through school. So I worked about 40 hours a week in dining halls and snack bars. I don't even think they have snack bars on campus anymore. My daughter, one of my daughters just graduated Syracuse. I don't remember them having, but there were snack bars in different dorms. So after the dining halls would close, you know, or before they would open, if you were hungry between classes, you had somewhere to go. So I was fortunate enough, I worked at the Sadler snack bar. And I think I convinced probably 10 to 12 people who worked at that snack bar to come work for us, whether it was in the sports department or the news department, or operations, or music, or whatever. So I don't remember, I think it was a spatula and not a spoon. I apologize, that is that your attention to detail, you're right, it was a spatula. So at Sadler's Snack Bar, there in the lobby, we had a grill, and Brian was probably working the grill. I guess it's probably true, but I, I, I shook that spatula at a few people. <laughs> I don't know how many actually came because of the spatula, it wasn't like I was going to hit him with it. But the truth is, you know, you wanted people there who wanted to be there. I'm surprised he remembered that story. I don't remember it specifically, but like I said, I tried. I, there was a lot of people there that I convinced to do it, and I always had a spatula in my hand. So <laughs> it's probably 100% accurate, I, w- I would guess. And it worked out, right, for him. He didn't He didn't say it as a negative, did he? No, he said it as a positive, and he said his biggest regret was not getting involved with the station sooner. And that's the way I felt. Real quick story, funny story. So to end on this, so my first on-air cast, I was a freshman, and my first on-air cast was October 10th, which was my birthday. You know, I started like four weeks in and I should have started sooner, right? But somehow I got on the air within I was willing to go in at six AM. So I'm proud of the cassette, even though I was terrible. I have it somewhere. But I did the on air cast and uh Rick Renner was the DJ at the time. Eric Renner, E Double R, and introduced me and whatever, and I like stumbled and I swallowed and I had to catch <laughs> my breath. I was terrible. But my on air name, for those who don't know it, when I was there was Jay Howard. Jay is my middle name. Howard was my First name, obviously. So I switched and became my on air name. In addition to that was also my on air when I was a DJ. I did the top eight at nine and I did some other shows as well. So I bring home this cassette. I go home for the weekend and I see my father and I pop the cassette in the car and I play the cassette. He listens to the two minute cast. And I said, What'd you think? He goes, Who the fuck is Jay Howard? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, What are you ashamed of denaroff? You don't want to keep that name? I said, well, no, in, in this business, everybody has an on-air name if you're on the air. He goes, let me ask you a question. If I give you a check to take back to school tomorrow and I sign it out to Jay Howard, can you cash it? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, no. He goes, well, then change your fucking name on the air. <laughs> <laughs> so the way I did it was anytime I was on the air, I was Jay Howard. I wouldn't play him the tapes. I when I was it. behind the scenes producing, I went by my real name, Howard Denneroff. And I would play him those. So he would see, he was produced by Howard Denaroff or whatever it was. Perfect. Anyway, thank you for your time. I appreciate you including us on this. I appreciate you doing this series of podcasts. So that's a lot of time. I know what's involved with this. And I appreciate that. I think this is a great thing. It's an important thing for the station, uh, for the history of it. And I'm glad somebody like you was willing to take on this project.
1: Well, and I appreciate you spending so much time with us today. I know you're a busy guy.
0: Enjoy the travels. Enjoy the sunny weather in L.A. after being in New York for so long, too. Yes. I must admit today was overcast and I went out of the house to come to the office and I'm driving here for the podcast. And I was like, I didn't sign up for this. What is this? It's the first time I've seen clouds, I think in six weeks. (laughs) Fair enough. Thank you so much. Take care. right now.